Well, this evening our sermon comes from 1 Samuel chapter 8. That's 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, it's been a, a few weeks since we've been in 1 Samuel together. Just to remind you where we've been, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, we ended at a high point. Uh, Israel had turned back to God through Samuel, and Samuel was now faithfully leading Israel, and God was abundantly blessing Israel. And then we hit 1 Samuel chapter 8, and it's a very, very different story. So let's read 1 Samuel chapter 8 together. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. Have you ever gotten something that you asked for and then realized it wasn't a very good thing to get? Probably had that experience. I think for me as a kid, it was probably getting to go to sleepovers. I really wanted to go, and I asked my parents, and they let me go, but when I came back, I was always so tired and irritable the next day, uh, though I was telling Hyojung recently, I think I only realized how bad the problem is now, not when I was a little kid. Uh, that, that's a silly example, maybe, but it starts to, to uh, illustrate the point. Um, maybe take something more serious. 
Have you ever asked God for something? And he's given it to you. And you realize later that it wasn't something good. Uh, God gave you what you asked for, maybe to teach you about your own sin or something else. It was a, a, a valuable lesson, but it's very painful along the way. That's really what's happening in our passage. Israel makes a sinful request for a king, and God decides to give them exactly what they have asked for. Now, we know that God always works everything for good for his people in our lives and in the life of Israel. And just as we'll see God's judgment in giving Israel a king, we're also going to see God's grace as we see the larger plan of God at work in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So that really leads us to our main idea that God gives Israel a king both in judgment and in grace. God gives Israel a king in judgment and in grace. So we look at that main idea together. We'll see three points. We'll see first rejecting the Lord, verses 1 through 9. Then we'll see warning the people in verses 10 to 18. And third and finally, we'll see making a king in verses 19 to 22. So first, let's begin with rejecting the Lord, verses 1 through 9. Uh, in the very beginning, verses 1 through 3, we discover there is a big problem in Israel, and it's sinful leaders. We read that Samuel was old, he had appointed his sons as judges, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Sinful leaders are not something new in Israel's history. We've already seen this problem in 1 Samuel when we've looked at Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas, sinful priests who are misleading the people. If you go a little bit further in Israel's history, look back at the book of Judges, you see a pattern of faithful leaders who are then followed by sinful ones. Sinful leaders are a problem for Israel. Everyone in Israel can see what the problem is as they look at Joel and Abijah, Samuel's sons. The question is what to do about it. And that leads the elders of Israel to come to talk to Samuel. And they've already got a plan ready. They're not willing to listen to him. They are telling him what must happen. Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Give us a king. That will solve all of our problems. Now, we know that they have many problems facing them. If you look a little further in 1 Samuel 12, uh, we know that Israel was also facing attack from outside enemies, Nahash the Ammonite as well. So if you put yourself in the position of the elders, they might have a lot of wise-sounding reasons why having a king right now would be a very good idea. And if they knew their Bibles well, they could come up with even more reasons. They would know that God allowed Israel to have a king. We just read from Deuteronomy 17 earlier. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So the elders of Israel would have had many reasons for a king, both from their own situation and also from Scripture. But it's very clear from this passage that the elders are wrong. Verse 6, Samuel is right 
to be displeased with the elder's plan. And we see why when we read God's judgment in verse 7. This is what God says. He says, yes, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Shows us that the elders are trying to replace God. Israel has rejected God as their king. Why is that the case? Why is asking for a king rejecting God? Let's think about the problem that the elders are trying to fix. The elders have correctly identified the problem, sinful leaders, but their solution shows that they don't even really understand the nature of the problem. They're proposing a political solution for a spiritual problem. If the problem is sinful leaders, will a king really solve that problem? No, of course not. A sinful king would probably even be worse than Joel and Abijah, worse than just a few sinful judges. The solution should be to turn to God in prayer, to ask him for guidance, and to rely on his kingship. They should have turned to Samuel for help, but instead they came and they pushed their own agenda. Isn't that the lesson, though? Isn't that the lesson that Israel learned in 1 Samuel 7, that they should come to Samuel? In 1 Samuel 7, Samuel prays for Israel, and God delivers them in a miraculous way from the Philistines. And then God continues to bless Israel through Samuel. God has just shown them in the past few years that he is more than able to meet their needs. But the elders are convinced that they need something better. They need a king. At the heart of their request is idolatry. They are worshiping something besides God. They are replacing their rightful king, God, with something else. A human king. Now, now this scene where the elders come to present their plan, this scene is meant to remind us of 1 Samuel chapter 4, when the elders of Israel of an earlier generation committed a similar sin. Remember in 1 Samuel 4, the elders came up with a plan to win victory by trying to control God by bringing his ark into battle. Back then, they were replacing God with something else as well. Not God's presence, but a thing, the ark of God. As God says in verse 8, uh, it isn't just a problem in these generations. This kind of idolatry has actually characterized Israel since the time of the Exodus. God says, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Samuel here is getting a small taste of what God has received from the Israelites for hundreds of years. And to make matters worse, Israel has continued to forsake God and serve other gods despite God saving acts for them. From the Exodus to the wilderness, to the conquest, to the judges, to Samuel. God has been faithful to Israel time and time again, and Israel has consistently 
sinned against him. This is why the elder's request for a king is wrong, not because a king is necessarily wrong, but because they are trying again to replace God with something else, with a king now. They think that this king will be able to help them in ways that God apparently can't. To put it into kind of covenantal terms, Israel here is rejecting God as their God. It's true that they aren't setting up physical idols, but they are putting their trust in princes. Princes, mortal man who cannot save. And to make their situation worse, Israel wants a king so that they can be like the pagan nations around them. Look at verse 5. Samuel, appoint us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, if you remember Deuteronomy 17, God said something similar there. A king like all the nations. So again, having a king like the other nations isn't necessarily wrong. But you can catch the subtext of the elder's request here in 1 Samuel 8. We want what the other pagan nations have because what we have with God isn't good enough anymore. In other words, Israel doesn't want to be that holy, distinctive people of God, set apart from the world, serving their king who reigns in heaven, the king who created and saved them. They don't want to be that anymore because it just wasn't good enough. God isn't good enough. So when Israel makes this request for a king, they don't really want God to be their God, and they really don't want to be his distinctive, holy, set-apart people. And this sin, really the seriousness of the sin that we see in this passage, makes God's decision to grant the request all the more surprising. God is allowing them to do something that seems to be separating them from him. We'll see there's a lot more to his plan, and there's grace there to be had. This really leads us to our second point then, the warning the people, verses 10 to 18. Before God finally does give Israel a king, he tells Samuel to warn the people about what having a king will really be like. We're supposed to see that this is a gracious warning. This is, this is an opportunity. God is giving Israel an opportunity, another chance to reconsider and to come back to the Lord. But notice how it ends in verse 19. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. The people had a choice. They had a choice to listen to God's warning and return or to continue in their sin. Part of the reason that God warns Israel about the king is to remind them of the difference between his kingship and a man's kingship. What will will the human king do? Well, the verb that is repeated over and over again in these verses is take. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your harvest. He will take a tenth of your crop for his servants. He will take your servants and animals. A king will continue to take. That's a human king. But what is God like? What is their heavenly father like? What a contrast we see here. Just remember the covenant blessings. Instead of taking, God the king gives and gives abundantly to his people. He gives rain. 
He gives crops. He gives children. He gives flocks. He gives protection. He gives growth. God is a giving God, a giving king. And yes, we can say that God demands worship, but he rewards worship and obedience abundantly as well. The contrast is so stark between this human king who takes from everyone and God who even gives to his people when they choose to walk away. It's it's worth pointing out, just as we look at this contrast, that Samuel is describing just a regular king, not even an evil king like Israel is going to get later in their history. This is just a normal king. And it makes sense that a king would want these things, that he would want soldiers and bakers and food and servants and animals. But this is not the king that Israel has been serving for so many years as they've served God. Verse 17 describes the end result of having this human king. You shall be his slaves. What a sad conclusion that God draws here. Even with the best of human kings, the best that you will be is slaves. It's like Israel is returning to the slavery of Egypt. God freed them. And Israel is leaving that freedom and voluntarily going back into slavery. But as God sees it, the situation is actually even worse than that. Look at verse 18. This is, a, this is a sobering message of judgment here. In that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. There's going to be a time when Israel is going to regret their choice. Could have even come as quickly as when they had Saul for a few years. Israel began to regret the choice that they had made to have a king. They will regret their idolatry and they will cry out but the Lord will not answer. Those are, those are chilling words. We find God's silence in passages of judgment when the covenant Lord will no longer hear and respond to the cries of his people for help. You can think of the time of the prophets later. I mean, the Lord has heard his people so many times. He's heard his people in Egypt and in the time of the judges, but in the time of the kings... This is the judgment that God declares now. He will not rescue his people from the sin that they have chosen. What we see third and finally then, making a king in verses 19 to 20. Israel remains stubborn in their sin. We see it again. Just listen to their pride and defiance here. Samuel has come graciously to confront them and they say, no, but there shall be a king over us. They are doubling down on their sin, and God in his wisdom allows them to have that king. He allows them to pursue that sinful course. Uh, it's, it's worth noting that the, the full scale of Israel's sin becomes even more evident in these final verses, because listen to what Israel says in verse 20. They want a king so that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's not just what a a regular human king would do. That's even more what God, their king, has been doing for them over these many years. Just think about the time of the Exodus, when God first shows them that he is their king. God gave them his law. 
He judged them. He went ahead of them in the pillar of smoke and fire for 40 long years. He led them out and he fought their battles for them. Think about it at the Red Sea, Exodus 14, 14. Moses tells the people, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Again, this is the king that Israel wants. They want someone to replace God. We've already seen that God giving Israel what they desired was a way of judging them for their sin. He's handing them over to their sin to learn their lesson. But as we think about God's greater plan for Israel through a king, we see God's great grace because God uses kings to greatly bless Israel. God uses Israel's sin to actually bring greater blessing for them later. Think first about David. God worked through King David to bring rest and security to Israel. And that rest was far greater rest, far greater protection than what Israel experienced under Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 7 in the previous passage. And God also used King David and later King Solomon to establish his worship and to build a permanent home for the ark in the temple. So God used the people's sin to bless them later through the kings and in fact to draw them closer to himself in worship, far closer than they were in the time of Samuel. It's also in the time of David and the later kings, and we see this through the Psalms in particular, that Israel recognizes just how great God is as their king. Think about how many Psalms call on God as the king. They recognize, the people recognize and worship God as the king who is ruling and defending Israel and who is the king not just of Israel, but who is the king of the nations, who is spreading his name to the ends of the earth. Think about Psalm 93 or 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. These are all amazing psalms of praise of God's kingship. God enables godly Israelites of later generations to look beyond their human kings, as good as they may be, as good as David even may be, to look beyond them, to look to God, their rightful and powerful king. But we know that the greatest example of God's grace to his people through a king is when he sent Jesus, the promised king. God made this promise already to David. In 2 Samuel 7 and again in Psalm 89, God promised David a greater son who will reign forever, a kingdom that will not be shaken and will last forever. We see that promise made clearer and clearer and clearer throughout the prophets, like Isaiah 9, where a son who is both God and man is promised to rule God's people. And in Jesus' conception, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his reign now, we see so clearly the greatness of our king. He's the perfect king that God provides for his people, both fully man and fully God. And this king came to save us from our sin, to save us from our very idolatry of seeking someone or something else besides his reign. Isn't that the good news of the gospel? That our king even died for us 
to save us from our sin and to bring us into his kingdom, to bring us into his rule. And you and I are experiencing the benefits of being under King Jesus, the benefits of his salvation right now. We live in his kingdom under his protection and in his blessing. And we are waiting for his return when he will be acknowledged as universal king, as the nations now will come and acknowledge him as king. And he will finally judge all his and our enemies. My point is this. God uses Israel's sin in 1 Samuel 8 for greater blessing, far greater blessing than anyone could ever have imagined. Think about what's happening in this passage. Israel wanted to replace God with their own human king. But God was gracious, and he gave us himself in our nature to be our king. He didn't give up on his people. And instead, he met their true need by coming to be our king. Israel wanted a king like the nations. They wanted to walk away from God. But God was gracious, and he has given us a king that the nations would want to come and serve. He has given the perfect king for everyone in the world. We have the benefit of living today and looking back and seeing God's grace so clearly in the whole sweep of Scripture. But it must have been so hard for Samuel. It must have been so hard for Samuel to see how any good could come out of this king that was meant to replace God. But God in his grace had bigger plans, far bigger plans, plans to bless and to save through Jesus the King. As we close, I want to point out two points of application here. There's many things that could be said, but I'm just going to mention these two here. First, one of the things that we see over and over again in 1 Samuel is the basic principle, we need to solve spiritual problems God's way. You know, we have many issues in our life, many issues, and many can be solved through very practical means. You know, if you're, if you're sick, go see a doctor. If you need something done, there's some wise counsel you can have, or there's something practical you can do. But so far in 1 Samuel, we see again and again that Israel tries to solve spiritual problems, problems of sin, problems of following God with sinful, man-centered plans. And whether it was the ark or a king, Israel always thought that they knew best. I think we're not that different from Israel. We're very good at coming up with our own plans and our own wisdom to address problems, especially spiritual problems. Our sin, our idolatry constantly gets in the way of listening to and submitting to our king. I would encourage all of us to grow in this before, before we attempt to solve a problem. Uh, whether as individuals as a ch- or as a church, we need to stop. We need to look at our own hearts, and we need to pray and to seek God's way. This is what Israel fails to do so many times, is to come to Samuel first instead of coming up with their own sinful plan. It can be the same for us. We need to look at our own hearts and our plans and compare them to God's revealed will. So, Solve spiritual problems God's way, not our own way. 
But secondly, trust that God uses our sins for good. This is one of the very prominent themes that we've seen in 1 Samuel 8. Israel sinned. Okay, let's be clear about that. Israel sinned, and they suffered. They suffered the consequences of their sin, even under a good king like David. Later kings were much, much, much worse. But God used even their sin for greater blessing. Uh, The same is true for us in our lives. If we really trust in a sovereign, loving, heavenly Father, then we can trust him to use everything, even our sin, for our eternal good. There is an enormous comfort and freedom in knowing and believing that this is true. You cannot out-sin God's plan for you. Uh, When we doubt that, though, when we do doubt God's plan or we look at our own sin, we need to look to Jesus. Even your greatest sins, even your greatest sins did not derail God's eternal plans for you. God chose you knowing what your sins would be in greater detail and in greater depth than any of us would ever know. God chose us knowing what our sins would be. And then Jesus came to pay for those sins. He came to pay for every single one of those sins in his body on the cross. So now, even though we sin, our sins are covered and God's plan of blessing for us continues. If that's the kind of salvation that we have, if that's the kind of salvation that God has given us, God will give us every spiritual blessing in Christ, both now and for eternity. So take comfort in that. Take comfort in that and being able to trust God that he uses everything, even our sins, for our good. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are so much wiser than we are. You can just imagine Samuel scratching his head as you let Israel go down this path of choosing a king. And yet you used this sin for incredible blessing as you sent Jesus the king to be the best king, the perfect king, the king that we need as well. Lord, we pray that we would uh, really be in awe of your wisdom and to trust you in our lives that even our sin you will use for eternal good. We thank you for that strength and that wisdom. Lord, we do pray that we would serve you as our king, that we would follow in your footsteps, and that we would do that with full hearts, uh, knowing what a great king you are and what you have saved us from. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.